Welcome. I am so glad that you are here today. I'm so grateful that you chose to come and worship, well, with the rest of us, with the community of God. There's so many other options. There's so many other things you could be doing. So grateful that you chose to be here today. You know, we have an opportunity each week or the privilege to open up God's transforming word. Wow. Have you thought of that? Have you thought of not only our times together, but every time you open this book, that it's God who's speaking to us. It is God who is talking to us. It's God who is revealing his heart to us. I know if you're like me, I have quite a few different Bibles, right? And, and quite a few different apps. And sometimes I hurriedly read through or sometimes I do my duty and, and make sure I read a verse a day or two. But that's changing. It's been changing for a while. It's been something that that I look forward to. And the privilege that I have over these next few minutes to be able to open up God's word. It's pretty cool. We begin a new series today. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. My guess is almost every one of you have heard of it. Maybe you've read through it. Maybe you've even memorized some of the Sermon on the Mount. But the Sermon on the Mount is the longest recorded sermon or message that Jesus gave. Now we know Jesus gave a whole lot of messages and sermons, and he taught a lot. In fact, all John tells us that all of the books or the libraries of all the world could hardly contain the things that Jesus said and did and the things that Jesus said. So this is just a small little piece of his teaching. But as so many scholars look at it, this is so critical, so very, very important. If you have your Bibles, you can start to open them and go to Matthew. It's the first gospel in chapter 5. But as you look in Matthew's gospel, as you open up in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we begin to see a spattering of what happens right before Jesus starts his public ministry. Of course, we just spent the Advent season focusing on his birth. That's in the first part of Matthew. And then we're introduced to John the baptizer. And then at the very end of at least that introduction, Jesus himself gets baptized. There's a voice from heaven that affirms that Jesus is God's son and that he is well pleased. And just as you turn the page or go into the next chapter, the scripture says that Jesus was led into the wilderness in order to be tempted. He was there for 40 days. And he stood up to the enemy. And then after about these 30 years of initial life in Christ's life, and after he's been baptized, he begins his public ministry. And what I'd like to do is read for you in Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 17 and jumping to verse 23. But this is what the scriptures say. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Then if you jump down to verse 23, Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. 
As you read through the book of Matthew, you'll notice that Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven often. And we're going to be talking about that, of course. In other gospel writers, they often refer to it as the kingdom of God. But here it is. Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus is publicly, well, given the right by his father. And he begins to preach, or the scriptures say, share the good news. And my question to you is right from the beginning, what is the good news? What is this long-awaited news? Well, think about it. The first words that came out, at least in verse 17, is probably not what was expected. Perhaps I think after hundreds of years of reading the Older Testament, of seeing all the prophecies, of knowing that the Messiah was going to come. Perhaps the Jews were looking for more of a message like this. Hey, guys, I'm the Messiah. I'm Jesus. Yeah, I finally arrived. I'm here to comfort you, and I'm here to encourage you, and I'm here to protect you. Now, the truth is, is that God does all those things. But they weren't the first words that came out of Jesus' mouth. The good news is that the long-awaited and predicted king or Messiah is here. So repent and turn to God. There's no fluff there. Jesus didn't want them to miss that being part of the kingdom, this amazing reign and rule of God, you need to be connected with God. It's so interesting, when the church was born in Acts chapter 2, and Peter was filled with the Spirit, in Acts chapter 3 verse 19, he is already preaching. If you understand that first part of Acts, John and Peter, they heal a lame man, and he has an opportunity then, as a result of this miracle, to preach. So he starts preaching. And in Acts chapter 3, it is so amazing. Starting in verse 19. This is what Peter says. Now repent of your sins and turn to God. So that your sins may be wiped away. Then the times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord. Your promised Messiah. He had an opportunity again to preach. He had an opportunity to be able to share good news. And the first thing that Peter says is the first thing that Jesus says. Repent and turn to God. If you don't, you will not ever experience the refreshment that the Messiah can bring. Now again, I'm not so sure thousands of years later. If you're thirsty, if you're tired... If you're weary of the grind, if you look around and you think there's got to be more to life, this is going to be good news. The good news is that Jesus Christ came to bring refreshment, but it requires some things. Jesus came to usher in the kingdom and systematically break down our poor views of God and what everyday life looks like underneath God's authority. To the Jews, their Messiah would be a rich, powerful ruler, not a poor peasant with little influence. The Jews thought the promised kingdom would be filled with peace and abundance and justice. They looked around and there was war and there was injustice and there was sacrifice. Jesus ushered in a new reality, a new way of life, beginning with his birth. As we just looked at, why would the king of kings come humbly as a little baby to a poor family and be born in a barn? Jesus made a statement from the very first time he entered 
this planet. Jesus came teaching, healing, destroying the effects of the fall and evil, and modeling what kingdom living and walking with the Father looks like. This gets me so excited because realistically, we are going to hear from Jesus, who is God and is also 100% man. He's going to model for us what it means to walk with God so that I might and you might be able to reflect our God better and greater and that we would make a kingdom impact in our lives. His teaching was different. Jesus' preaching seemed radical to these folks. But what Jesus was trying to change the paradigm, it's about an obedient heart bearing fruit, not about performance, not about how much you do, not about how many sacrifices you make. Walking with God changes your priorities. It changes your price tags. You seek first his kingdom, not yours. Kingdom living is about pleasing the king and serving others. Jesus established a standard of living counter to everything the world practices and holds dear. There should be some angst in your soul as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. Not because you or I are so extremely evil and we've bought into the culture and all of the culture's principles and priorities. But each one of us, we've, well, dabbled. Some more than others. And Christ's words are going to be like a sledgehammer. We're going to look at it. We're going to evaluate. We're going to ask questions. You see, Jesus established a standard of living that is just different. Christ's teaching will shock you like it shocked the original hearers. You're going to hear things in the Sermon on the Mount that says, don't murder. Whoa, we're all there. (laughs) Not a big deal. We agree with that one. But he says, but I say, don't hate anyone because it's just like murder. It's... It's a different lens to look through. Jesus said, don't commit adultery. And and we would affirm that. But he goes a little further and he says, hey, I I just want you to know that if you lust after a woman, it's just like committing adultery. Whoa. Don't avenge your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Give your clothes away. Carry your enemies' loads. Who would do that? Well, apparently someone who is walking with God, who is listening to the Father and recognizing that we who are part of the kingdom treat others differently. Don't hate your enemies. (laughs) Pray for them and love them. Don't hoard. Be generous. Don't worry. (laughs) Where do we get there? Don't worry. Well, I'm concerned. Okay, don't be concerned. Why? When we find out the king is in control. It's amazing the life you can live as you walk with the king. Jesus talked much about the kingdom. He loved sharing parables. And in Matthew 13, you can go there and read that later. That whole chapter is... Well, stories that Jesus tells about the kingdom, trying to help us understand the kingdom. One of the stories in Matthew 13 is about a man walking down the road and he finds a treasure. He gets so excited. He he sees this treasure. He buries the treasure again. And the scripture says that he leaves, he sells everything he owns so that he could buy the field and get the treasure. What was Jesus saying? Hey, the kingdom, when you find it, when you understand it, it is worth selling everything. It don't sell everything in order to get the kingdom. But the priority in your life becomes so important, nothing else matters. 
If we just look at that one little section, I'm convicted. Is the kingdom that important? Is listening to God that important? Is obeying my father that important that I'm just willing to sell everything? This is radical. We hear these stories. We hear these parables. We read these scriptures. And we say, nice. But when the first hearers heard this, they were appalled. And I think as we get into this, we will become more and more appalled. You see, kingdom living is not about being religious, polishing the outside of the cup. The Sermon on the Mount is Christ's authoritative teaching about what normal life ought to look like under the reign and rule of God. Yes, eventually it'll be perfection. Eventually we will live with God in eternity. But he's giving us snapshots now. So Jesus preaches. And disciples are called and crowds gather right before we get to Matthew 5. Saying, Rick, that was the longest introduction I've ever heard. We can go longer, but we won't. Before we open up Matthew chapter 5, let's pray. Let's pray. Oh, Father, in some ways, as I looked at this text, I was so excited. And then the next moment, I was so intimidated. Lord, I, I know these words are your words, and I... I know this sermon is important. I know we as kingdom peoples, those who have received you as Savior, those who are part of your family, we need to hear these words. Lord, we're going to get disenchanted. There's no way we can obey you in our own strength here. We need you in every area. So even as we begin this sermon, Lord, change our hearts, change us from the inside out. Would would we leave as different people because we have praised you and we have worshipped you and we have honored you and we have heard you and we have obeyed you. We ask that, God. I pray for all the, the teachers that are downstairs and all the ministries that happen all week long. God, work. Do your work in us and through us. We love you, Lord. And pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. We begin in Matthew chapter 5 with something that most scholars would call the Beatitudes. It's the first part of Jesus' teaching. It's focusing on the character that is produced in us, not that we try to do, because we walk with God. The rest of the sermon models a life which naturally flows out of a rich relationship with God. The first four Beatitudes focus on our relationship with God, while the rest of them focus on our relationship with others. The Beatitudes are pronouncements. They're not probabilities. As I mentioned, I think the message could be quite discouraging if we think life change is up to us and don't understand the source of kingdom living. You know, in 2 Peter chapter 1, I I love the opportunity to read through, especially Peter, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. This was an apostle, but this was an apostle that seemed so arrogant and so unteachable at times. 
And I love after he spent time with Jesus and after he took leadership of that growing church and as he penned these words, this is what he says. Second Peter chapter 1. By his divine power, by God's power within us, God has given us everything we need to live a godly life. Everything. We have received all of this by coming to know him, by coming to him by faith. The one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence. He has given us great and precious promises. These are promises that enable you to share his divine nature. Doesn't that give you goosebumps? And escape the world's corruption caused by human desires or our selfish desires. You're going to hear that a lot this morning. You just are. Is that we have such a selfish bent. And God says, hey, I've given you power to overcome that. You can walk with me and you can think less about yourself and more about the kingdom and myself. Now, our text over the next few weeks, we use terms like happy or blessed. You will see that all the way through, especially the Beatitudes. Happy, blessed, blessed. Well, one of my professors way back a million years ago, D.A. Carson, he is a renowned Bible scholar. You, 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 you listen to him teach, and after the third or fourth sentence, you're going like, what am I doing here? I, 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 I'm not on the same wavelength as you. I, I need to listen a little sharper. Well, one of the things, he says that when he dug into this passage... He believes the Greek word is better translated, find approval. In other words, in the kingdom, God approves of. Now, it carries with it happiness or it carries with it blessedness. Because if we listen and obey and please God or do what God approves, these are natural pieces of fruit that follow. So let's look. Finally, Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at verse 1. One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up to the mountainside, or on the mountainside, and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach. Verse 3. God blesses those who are poor, And realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now by by any means do I feel that I am a super scholar of the Greek language. And can just automatically translate different verses. But as I spent time in this text and as I dug into the language... I made an attempt to translate this verse into a verse I think that will be more helpful for us to understand. I would translate it this way. God approves of those who know they are spiritually bankrupt and have a need for him. The kingdom of heaven will be theirs. Let's try and understand what Jesus was saying and then how we can obey him. God says this, I approve of those who are poor in spirit. The word poor is a verb meaning to shrink or to cower or to cringe like beggars. In classical Greek, this specific word was used to refer to a person that was reduced to total destitution who crouched in a corner begging. There is a completely different word for ordinary poverty. So to be poor in spirit is to recognize one's spiritual poverty apart from God. 
It is to see oneself as one really is. Lost, hopeless, helpless, separated. That only a relationship with Christ can bring life. Education or wealth or social status or accomplishments or religious knowledge. Well, none of that can give us life or connect us with God. Simply because God is holy. And God is not able to have a connection with anyone who isn't holy. The poor in spirit are those who recognize their total spiritual destitution and their complete dependence on God's mercy and grace for a relationship. We all recognize that our works are like filthy rags. Those poor in spirit depend wholly upon God for their righteousness. They recognize justification and sanctification comes only through faith in Christ's redemptive work. Those who are poor in spirit repent, just like Jesus said. Repentance is a change in the way that we think about sin. We agree with how God thinks about sin. You see, Christ paid our debt of sin and satisfied his wrath. Faith in Christ's atoning work on the cross saves you. It justifies you. And it sanctifies you. It gives you an opportunity to walk with God. I think somebody poor in spirit is someone that is described like in Luke chapter 18, where there's two gentlemen that go into the temple and, and, and they pray. There's one who is quite religious and one who, who seems to, I'll think that God was pretty lucky in order to get him, realistically. But there's another person and, and, and they come in and they cower and they recognize how holy God is and recognize what grace has been given to them. And they basically pray, Father, be merciful to me, a sinner. I almost think that is the type of attitude we need to start off our prayers. Father, I don't deserve to come into your presence. Father, you are so amazingly holy and I'm not. I thank you for sending Jesus, for shedding his blood. I thank you for taking my debt. I I thank, Father, be merciful to me. I am a sinner. The Beatitudes are progressive. They're not taught in random or haphazard order. Being poor in spirit, which we're hitting today, leads us to be able to mourn and to be meek and gentle and to hunger and thirst after righteousness and to be merciful and pure in heart and to be a peacemaker. It starts here. Being wholly dependent upon Jesus is foundational and must precede everything else. You see, Jesus is talking about humility. It's a person who depends upon God for everything because God is wise and God is strong and God is faithful. We look at our lives, we look at our skill set, we look at our gifts and we recognize that everything we have is because of God's grace. Pride or arrogance has no part in Christ's kingdom. The self-sufficient, the self-focused, they don't need God and they don't walk with God. The proud do not understand the grace of God and don't even feel they need it. The arrogant do life on their own. And when they do, they produce evil, fleshy fruit which ends up in death. Now, some of 
well, a life or a person who lives apart from God, who is selfish, who looks only at its own or his own interests. Well, a person like that, their fruit, the thing that happens when we're selfish is that there's hostility and there's quarreling and there's outbursts of anger. There's selfish ambition. There's dissension. There's division. There's sexual immorality and more. That's just a partial list of Galatians 5 of someone who doesn't walk with God. Someone who is selfish. Someone who cares more about their own selves. These are marks or the fruit of a selfish, prideful person. So until a soul is humbled, until the inner person is pure in spirit, Christ can never become dear because Christ is obscured by our own selves. Where self is exalted, Christ cannot be. So Christ makes it very clear from the beginning, we need God for everything. We need God for everything. Now, watching Jesus do life and walk with his father helps us understand what humility looks like and how arrogant we truly are. At least, that's how I felt. And feel at times as I open the scriptures and I, and I see how Jesus forgives. Or I see how Jesus loves. Or I see how Jesus serves. Oh, Father, I... I'm not like that. You're changing me. You're chipping things away. But but Lord, I need you. Because I can't do this. And nor can you. You see, as we look at Jesus, Jesus chooses to submit to his Father's will. No matter what his Father's will is, is for Jesus, including going to a cross. Wow. Scriptures talk to me. The scriptures give me God's plan. And sometimes it includes suffering, that's true. But sometimes it's just simply telling the truth. Well, Why do I struggle? If I tell the truth, I'm not going to look so good. You know, each one of us need to submit to God's word. No matter what it is, or even if we don't understand his plan or his timing. And Jesus modeled for us that so very well when he went to the cross. Jesus chose to forgive. Why? Because he could leave justice in his father's hands. Sometimes we don't forgive because we want to make things right. Sometimes we don't forgive because we like vengeance. But someone who walks with God can truly forgive. Just like Jesus asked us to. With the power and the authority, because we know that our God is just. Jesus chose to serve others, knowing that his Father would lift him up at the right time. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, chose to serve, not be served. Because God knew when he was going to exalt them. Jesus chose to sacrifice his comfort and plans, knowing God's ways are best. Wow, do we struggle with that, don't we? Don't we, in some arrogant way, often tell God, it's called complaining. God, (laughs) did you miss this one? Really? Maybe you're too busy today. Mm, flat 
tire. Do you, do you know my schedule today, God? Honestly. Did you? Now, we don't talk to God like that. Some of us, for sure, would be afraid to talk to God like that. Like, God, you're wrong. Hey, God, what is the deal? Hey, God, your plans stink. But someone who walks with God understands circumstances. Or as we heard last week, interruptions. That we can eventually praise God about. Wow. Jesus chose to spend time. Walk with his father and depend on him completely. Even if it meant 40 days without food. Wow. I'm not sure if God asked me to go 40 minutes without food. All right? I mean, just... He says, no. This is what I want for you, my son. Okay. I think I'm going to be hungry. I'm going to take care of you. I, I need you to do this. Okay. And all the way through Jesus' life, he chose to give God all the credit, all the glory, all the honor. They may ask, how can I grow in this humility? How can I grow in my dependence on him? God approves of people who are poor in spirit. I I, I want to be in that camp. Well, I think there's two easy steps to grow in humility and grow in our dependence. Now, he can grow us other ways, but I wanted to share two things that I just think it'll help give you a handle as it's done for me. Step number one is to confess pride as sin. Own it. The beauty of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. John writes this, but if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive Give us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, as we walk with God, we see how heinous sin is. We recognize what an abomination that is and the fruit that follows. We can own that. We can change our mind. We can repent of our sin. God, you are right. I am selfish. I am blind. This is sin. I need to be clean. My way is not best. Your way is best. Help me submit. God, I'm going to struggle. I am struggling. John Stott, an English preacher, another man who I respect and enjoy his writings, He writes about Proverbs 6, 16, and 17, where Solomon lists what we would call the seven deadly sins, things that really tick God off. Well, in that, pride is the first one mentioned. But John Stott says this, pride is more than the first of the seven deadly sins. It itself is the essence of all sin. If that's true, maybe that's why the first beatitude, the first thing that Jesus talks about is, hey, my father approves of those who are poor in spirit, who realize their need for God all the time, everywhere. For the kingdom of God is theirs. The kingdom of God is theirs. Furthermore, in Proverbs 16, 5, Solomon writes this. The Lord detests the proud. Let, let that sit. The Lord's kind of mad at the proud. Uh, The Lord just doesn't like when we're proud. 
How about the Lord detests? And is there anyone here that has the courage to be able to say, you know what? I want to do what the Lord detests. Not me. I, I, I don't want to do that. But God says, do, do you understand our bent? Second, second step. First one, confess pride. Secondly, and this may just be the hardest, submit to God. Submit to God, which makes us humble and dependent upon God. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. He says, humbly or so humble yourself under the mighty power of God. And at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. James, the brother of Jesus, writes in chapter 4 just about the same thing. Be humble recognize that your way is not the best way. Recognize that there's a king who knows all. Recognize how much he loves, he cares, and desires you to experience abundant living. Recognize that we just don't have it. It means listening and obeying God. So simple. In one of the groups that I meet with, Every week as we read through the scripture, one of the questions I ask, one of the questions all the rest of the guys ask, is there something in the word, something we just got through reading that we are not submitting, not obeying, are we rebelling against? Because sometimes we just read through the scripture, right? And if something's a little offensive or something we just don't do, we just kind of go over it. That's all. Uh, we'll, we'll approach this later. Anytime we open up this book and, and God pricks our heart. God uses his word. So many times I just says, hey, what word? What sentence affected you? That's the Holy Spirit talking to you. And you have a choice. I have a choice every single time. Do I listen? Do I not listen? Do I obey? Submitting to God means listening and obeying God. It begins with a choice to submit to God, to receive God's timing and circumstances. You see, disobedience, as I said, is heinous. Disobedience isn't sort of bad. Disobedience is the height of pride and arrogance. Disobedience literally says, I know more than you, God. And would each one of us repent of an attitude like that? Actually, listening to God makes his voice a priority, not the culture's. I got to tell you, the culture is loud. The media shouts. The philosophies ooze in. Creep in. God's word needs to be our priority. And then what happens? Here's the promise. The promise. God says that I approve all those who are poor in spirit, all those who are so dependent upon me. Yes. And those who are like that, those who are spiritually bankrupt and depend wholly upon God. The promise is the kingdom is theirs. They experience life underneath God's reign. There is peace. There is power. There is an assurance. There is an authority. You see, God gives abundant life to those who come to the king humbly, to those who embrace his authority in their lives. God gladly gives the kingdom. 
the blessings of the kingdom to those who humbly come to him and trust him. And as I read almost in the very beginning, in Acts chapter 3, when Peter was preaching, repent, repent, and turn to God, because if you do, God's presence will be so refreshing. That's the reward. The reward is listen and be refreshed. As I close up our time, I'd like to put up on the screen actually how I've interpreted this verse. God approves those who know they are spiritually bankrupt and have a need for him. The kingdom of heaven will be theirs. This is foundational. The the Beatitudes seem, well, impossible. And they are. I, I hope you come back every week. I hope you learn to hear what God is speaking to you, speaking to us as a church, as a culture, as individuals. You're going to see that Jesus himself goes into the great display window of life and changes all the price tags. And you'll never regret listening to him. You know, Micah, was a prophet. And the children of Israel were really, really struggling in this, (laughs) doing a lot of sacrifices, trying to please God with all the goody two-shoes things that they do. But their hearts were far from God. And Micah says in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, he says, O people, the Lord has told you what is good. And what he requires of you. And do what is right. Love mercy. And walk humbly with your Lord. I, I'm going to pray in just a moment. But we're going to end things today just a little bit differently. I, I think mostly because this is the first message of the series. As I shared, it's so foundational for us to get the rest, for us to experience abundant living. We're going to have to understand this very first beatitude. So I'd like you to just be quiet and take the next few minutes. I'd just like you to talk to God. You're going to hear some music in the background. And I'd like you just to talk to God. Share your heart. Maybe there's going to be some confession. Maybe there's going to be some repentance. Maybe there's going to be some joy. But just take a little bit of time right now, quietly, and let's talk to our Lord. And I'll close in prayer in just a moment.
Father, we started off talking about how amazing and wonderful and great you are. And that you have given us your word. There are times, Lord, we look back and say, whoa, it would be so exciting to be able to hear Jesus teach. To be able to hang out with Jesus. And you told your disciples right before you went to the cross it's better that I leave it's better that I leave because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is going to live in you and will teach you and guide you and convict you Father you've given us your word and you've given us a spirit to teach us and convict us God, your words change us. Your words convict us. Your words encourage us. We're inspired. We ask you, dear God, that today, for each one here who's made a decision, maybe a recommitment, maybe there's been some confession, I pray, dear God, that you would draw your people to yourself, all of us, this pastor, your leaders, your people, that we would see you differently, that we would cling to you, and that we would recognize your authority in our lives. There's no room, Father, for our selfishness. There's, there's no room for our self-centeredness. Everything we have and Everything we've done is because of your grace and your mercy. We thank you, Father. We thank you. We adore you and are grateful. This day, God, as we, as we leave, as we ponder some of your words, would you change us? We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it's at this time that I encourage you to make a commitment. Maybe you need some encouragement on the journey. Maybe you don't even know God the way that you had hoped to know God.